Well, as I recall it, uh, I was back in seminary, and I was taking a class with a professor who really put our seminary on the map. I went to Phoenix Seminary in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, of course, and uh, this professor was known nationally. No, he was known worldwide. People would literally come from around the globe to come to our seminary because this professor taught there. And I was there taking his premier class that he taught. He taught this class called hermeneutics. Now that means basically how to study your Bible. And there I was in the class with this renowned professor every week sitting under his teaching, learning from his brilliance, and I absolutely loved it. I'll keep his name anonymous to tell you this part of the story. We were in class one night, and he said to us, I need to tell you about someone in the seminary who is a deceiver. This man has been leading us down a path that is wrong. I want to talk to you about Dr. Bill Yarger. Dr. Bill Yarger was the vice president of Phoenix Seminary at the time. And what was happening in the moment was that Phoenix Seminary, when it started out just a few years earlier, was under the umbrella of Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. And it was under the umbrella, which was also under the umbrella, of the conservative Baptist denomination. And according to when I was signing up, they said, now we're transitioning from being under the conservative Baptist denomination and Western Seminary to become an independent seminary. And as an independent seminary, we are going to be interdenominational. We're not going to be under one denomination. And I knew that going into it. I knew that there. But then this professor was teaching, and he said, Dr. Bill Yarger is a liar, and he's deceiving us all. And he's leading this seminary in a direction that I know God does not want us to go. Now, little did this professor know that while I was at seminary, Dr. Bill Yarger was one of my mentors. Matter of fact, I met with Bill Yarger on a regular basis, no less than like once a month. And I knew Bill Yarger as a man of integrity, a man of humility, a dynamic leader, but yet a man who was a godly guy. This professor in the class said to us, Dr. Bill Yarger is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Could it be that this guy that I looked up to, Dr. Yarger, could it be that his integrity, his humility, was all just a front? That he truly was a wolf? in sheep's clothing? I had to ask him. Not that exactly. I just said, now, is this true that, uh, that you're deceiving us? That this is really not the will of Western Seminary or the conservative Baptist denomination? That this whole independence thing is something that you're just manipulating and pushing? I don't know if I put it quite that bluntly, but I was asking him the question. He said, absolutely not. From the very beginning, this was the plan. And we're just carrying it out now. You know, in that moment, I, I, I was really wrestling. 
Because here, here, here they are, professor and a leader among leaders, a, a renowned professor that, that many in, around our world looked up to. And this leader in the seminary who, who was leading the charge of making this transition in the seminary, um, could he be, could Dr. Yarger actually be a wolf in sheep's clothing? Could I have been deceived? And this professor, I mean, to say that he's going against God's will, and he's leading all these people in the seminary away from God. Why, why was he telling us, the students? Were we really the audience that he should have vented his frustrations with? You know what I really wrestled with with this moment was trying to couple these guys' reputation with their character. They had a great reputation, but... What was happening in this moment was, but what's their actual character like? Could we see good character and be able to identify it? Can we understand what good character looks like? Do we live out a life that would display good and godly character? And when we mess up, how do we regain our character? Well, we're starting a, a new series, uh, and it's going to be all about character. It, we're titling it, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And we're going to start David. That's King David, many of you would know him as. Because he was called a man after God's own heart. Now you see this head of a famous statue that Michelangelo carved out of marble. This is the famous David statue. And uh, art people, experts, and those who are just novices, even you and I, might look at that sculpture and it has been known as one of the most perfect works of art in world history. Now as perfect as that sculpture might be, David himself was anything but perfect. <laughs> he had good, for sure. But he had bad. And he had ugly. And yet, the Bible is clear, he was a man after God's own heart. So, we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about the character qualities of King David and how they helped him to have a heart after God. And then we're going to apply it to our lives. How can we have that kind of heart? How can we establish these character traits in our lives? So we're going to have to go back in time. i got to introduce you to the guy named David. we got to go way back. we got to go back to 1041 B.C. 1041 B.C., and this little town, a little podunk town called Bethlehem, there was a guy named Jesse, and his wife was giving birth to a little baby boy, the eighth child. And uh, he came out, they named him David. <laughs> David. Samuel was on the scene. Samuel was the last of the judges of the Old Testament, and he was getting up there in age. Uh, Israel was a nation at the time, and they were 
drifting away from God. And at that time, Saul was the king. When David was born, Saul had been king for about nine years already. Now, fast forward 17 years. David is now a teenager. And Saul was beginning to show his lack of character. He was slipping. So this morning, to get us started, I thought I would look at the character flaws of King Saul and then contrast them with the character awes of David. So let's start with the character flaws of King Saul. Saul started out so well. He was a handsome guy to begin with, but I mean, he was humble. He wanted to do things God's way. And then for the first 50 years of his life, things were going well. He was really building into his life great godly character. But character can be torn down with incredible swiftness. And he tended to move toward character flaws. The first flaw that I think he moved toward that we'll see out of our text this morning is the character flaw of riding the fence. Saul wanted to ride the fence. He moved away from wanting to obey God wholeheartedly and humble himself before him and commit himself to just doing what he felt was necessary to at least display some sort of godly character. He, he basically wanted to do just as much as he felt was enough that God would be okay with him. So if you have your Bibles handy, you can go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, uh, over his people, over Israel. Now, by the way, he's talking about what happened 26 years earlier when Saul, uh, Samuel anointed Saul to be king. So he's saying, listen, we go back a long ways together. We know each other. We, you can trust what I'm about ready to tell you here. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him, that would be Israel, or more specifically, Moses, and on the way while he was coming uh, out from Egypt. So when Moses and the Israelites were released from their captivity in Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt, they're wandering in the wilderness, and uh, Amalek and the Amal uh, Amalekites uh, attack Israel. And you can read about this in Exodus 17, but just let me tell you the story. So uh, the Amalekites attack the Israelites, and Joshua, under Moses, is a leader of the army, and they start fighting the Amalekites, and the Israelites are losing. And Moses is standing up on a hill, and he raises his arms. And as soon as he raises his arms, the Israelites start winning. Lowers his arms, they start losing. Raises his arms, they start winning. It's kind of bizarre, but one time in the Old Testament, this was the truth of what was happening. So the Israelites pick up on what's going on. So they're like, well, we've got to keep Moses' arms up so we win the battle. And so they actually propped up his arms on rocks on either side. And he still was getting tired. So some guys came and held up his arms. And then they ended up winning over the Amalekites. They beat the Amalekites in this battle. And it's interesting what God says at the end of the battle in, in Exodus 17. Because the Amalekites attacked the Israelites... God says, I will blot out their memory from the face of the earth. 
And so under Saul, this was God's plan. Now is the time we're going to wipe out the Amalekites from the face of the earth. There's going to be nothing left of them, and history will forget them. So now read verse 3 of 1 Samuel 15. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him. That would be the king. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Lot out their memory from all of the earth. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Canaanites, now by the way, the Canaanites, okay, so they are the ones that when the Israelites were fighting the Amalekites, the Canaanites were, were nice to the Israelites. They were helping them out. So you can read about that in Exodus 18. We don't have time to go there. But anyway, so Saul said to the Canaanites, verse 6, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Kavilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, which is what God told them to do, but they were not willing to do it. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. You know what Saul's flaw was? (laughs) He only gave God partial commitment. In his life. God says, I want your whole commitment to do exactly what I want you to do. And he says, I'm going to do what I think is best. I understand your guidelines, but I'm going to ride the fence on this one. God says, blot out their memory from the earth. Kind of brutal, I understand. But this was the decree that God gave to Saul. And Saul did not obey him completely. I wonder if we do this. Do we ride the fence with God? You know, I know what you want for my life, God. I, I get it. But you know what? I've got, I've got other things that are important to me too, you know. I wonder if Saul was a little worried about his reputation. I mean, you know, totally wipe out everybody. Is that really, how's the nations around me going to feel about it, you know? What was it about him that said, I'm not going to do exactly what God wants me to do here? What is it that stops us? Our reputation? You know how people view us? Um, Um, what our friends might think of us, how it's going to affect our careers. Uh, You know what, I'm going to obey God, but only as much as I feel it's enough to get by. Like Saul, if we choose to obey God only sort of, we choose to just kind of ride the fence a little bit. It's a flaw in our character. A second flaw I see in Saul is narcissism. Now, there's a word that you may not come across very often. It's actually from Greek mythology. There was a guy in Greek mythology named Narcissus. And Narcissus was this young, strapping guy, really good-looking guy. And he comes up to a pool of water, according to Greek mythology, and he looks down into the pool of water, and he sees his reflection, and he thinks, wow, now there's a good-looking guy right there. That was my own ad. You can't read that in Greek mythology. But 
He looks down and he is enamored with his reflection in the water. I mean, he, he finds himself going, man, I am the best. I cannot stop admiring myself. I cannot stop gazing into my reflection. And he yearned for that so much that according to Greek mythology, he died staring at himself. Narcissism. It's a preoccupation with oneself. Narcissism is an inflated view of self-importance. Or as I have it in your outline, narcissism is a sense of superiority. You know, like you're the best one in the room, really, when you think about it. This is what Saul had. He was a narcissist. Look at verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. A guy that he's known for years and years, and he sees his character drifting away. He sees his character flaws, and he so longs for him to come back to the Lord that he, he's just in turmoil over, over Saul. Verse 12, Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Talk about narcissism, right? Then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. I have done such great things. I am so superior, and I can tell that you're here because of that. Narcissistic people are oblivious to their flaws. So let's try to hold up a little bit of a mirror. Let's try to help maybe those who might lean in this direction see, well, what is it that would reveal someone is narcissistic? Uh, first of all, narcissistic people have this, it's not my fault syndrome. You know, like, okay, I understand things aren't going quite right, but it's not my fault. This was Saul. Look at verse 14. Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Well, listen, it's not my fault. It's the people. I know, I didn't bring any oxen and sheep, just like I was told not to. But the people, they, they brought them. And, and by the way, they did it for a good reason. It's like, you know, they're going to sacrifice it to your God. I mean, what more could you ask for? Yeah, narcissistic people, it's not my fault. And they're the ones that did wrong. A second sign of a narcissist is uh, they're argumentative and they're self-defensive. Look at verse 16. And Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And so Saul said to Samuel, Speak. Samuel said, Is it not true, though, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? Remember back when you were humble, Saul? Remember back when, when you started out, the right kind of heart you had? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission. This is the mission to destroy the Amalekites. And he said, go and utterly destroy the sinners. 
the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, by the way, I'd say Saul argued with Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on a mission in which the Lord sent me. And I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and Ava utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, they took some of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. I mean, what's so wrong with that? He's arguing with, with Samuel. Yeah. You know, it's really hard to admit when we're wrong. It's virtually impossible to admit when you're wrong when you're a narcissist. People who are narcissists are defensive, and they blame others, and they fight to be right. Those with this character flaw of an unhealthy sense of superiority, they typically don't see it in themselves. Well, a third way that we can have a character flaw is by confession. Well, you might think, what's a character flaw? with confession. Well, it's confession with the wrong heart. It's confession for self-protection. Not admitting when we're wrong is a character flaw. But when we're forced to, okay, you got me cornered, all right, I gotta, I gotta confess. When, when we're cornered to confess, a character flaw is we're confessing to kind of protect ourselves. Look at verse 22. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion, which saw you have, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. What he's saying is rebellion is as bad as practicing witchcraft or demon worship. And insubordination, you know, disobedience to the one who's over you, who has authority over you. And in this instance, Samuel had authority over Saul. Insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Whoa. Imagine being Samuel hearing those words, those blunt, forceful words. Well, he confesses. <laughs> Verse 24, Then Saul said to Samuel, I, uh, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people. Listen to their voice. It's their fault. He doesn't own it for himself. He blames them. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor, who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel, that's a name for God there, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he, he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he, Saul, said, Okay, I have sinned. 
But please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me. In other words, don't let this ruin my reputation. Okay, I know I've got a character flaw here, but hey, try to save my reputation for me. Because if you don't go back with me, people are going to see that and they're going to start talking. So go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. No doubt before all the people so they can see, see that I'm still following him. And in a gracious move, Samuel says, Samuel, it says in verse 31, so Samuel went, went back following Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. True confession, true confession is admitting that I've offended you, or I've offended God, and I take full responsibility for it. That we would say, it's my fault. It has nothing to do with you guys. I want you to know it's my fault. Or, you know, you would say that to somebody else. It's my fault. I own it. True confession is where our hearts are fixed on the other, not on ourselves. And when I say fixed on the other, it's not trying to blame them. It's trying to see how we've wronged them and wanting to make it right. True confession is to admit our wrongs without any motivation for self-protection or trying to save our reputation before God or before others. That's important to know. True confession is to admit our wrongs without any motivation of self-protection or of trying to save our reputation before God or others. It's where we place ourselves 100% at the mercy of another or at the mercy of God and honestly say, I'm sorry. Ironically, if you read 2 Samuel chapter 1, you'll find that that's where Saul died. And you know who killed Saul? An Amalekite. Seriously. <laughs> Read it in 2 Samuel chapter 1. I mean, if he was more concerned with his character than he was about his reputation, no doubt things would have turned out differently. Well, enough about the flaws of King Saul. Let's move on to the character awes of Saul's successor to the throne. The rest of our series is going to focus on David. So let's begin by reading 1 Samuel 16 and verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. So Samuel goes to Jesse's house in Bethlehem, and Jesse has eight boys, and uh, they go into this room and they have a sacrifice before the Lord. And now these guys are going to be marched before Samuel so that God can tell them which one is going to end up being the next king. And so we pick it up down in verse 6. When they, Jesse and his boys, entered, he, Samuel, looked at Eliab. Eliab was uh, Jesse's oldest son. And Samuel thought, surely the Lord's anointing is before him. I mean, look at the guy, you know. 
the firstborn son, I mean, and, you know, Jesse's oldest, and you can just tell it's got to be the king, right? Well, verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. True character is an issue of the heart. It's all about our innermost inclinations and desires. Are they pleasing to God? David's were. He was the youngest of eight boys, and he showed great character coming from the heart. And as we unpack chapter 16, I see four qualities in David that I think we can grow in ourselves. The first one is this. David was responsible. He was responsible. Those who have good character are responsible. And specifically, they're responsible when nobody is watching. Look at verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is tending the sheep. So here they're all inside, having a party, having a great time together. And where's David? He's out tending the sheep. He's out being responsible for, you know, the livestock of Jesse. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. So here we are, David, unknown, unseen, unappreciated, unapplauded. That's where character is built, in the routine of life, in what's regular, unexciting, the uneventful tasks of everyday life. Staying responsible for his father's sheep when no one was looking, that was the training ground of David's character. Being responsible to God when nobody's watching. That in our private lives, in our thoughts, when nobody's looking, that's where either godly character or ungodly character is formed. It depends on how we spend our time. Well, not only was David responsible, secondly, David was peaceful. There's a sense of peace when it came to David at this stage in his life. Look at verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now com command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp. 
And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that you shall play the harp with the hand and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. I'll jump down to verse 23. So it came about whenever this evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. By the way, this whole idea of this evil spirit sent from God, what's that all about? I mean, there are a lot of opinions out there as to what, what, what this is talking about. I, I was doing some language work with the text, and, uh, and I, I came to this conclusion, and I'm not the only one that holds it, and so I, I thought, well, I, got, I can't be too far off. The idea that this spirit that is sent from God, that's called an evil spirit, you could actually understand that as a spirit who brings disaster. Now think about it, God made a commitment, I'm going to tear the kingdom from Saul's hands and give it to another. In other words, I'm going to bring about disaster from Saul to Saul so that the kingdom would be removed from him so I would give the kingdom to another. Throughout the Bible, actually, you do see that God does send his angels onto the earth to carry out his judgments. Uh, in the Old Testament, a lot of times it has to do with individual people that the angels will come to and carry out God's judgment. At the end of it all, back in the book of Revelation, we're going to see that angels actually carry out God's judgments throughout the entire earth. And yet whenever David showed up with Saul, God's peace would flood that place. When people are around us, what kind of vibe do we give off? Are we peacemakers? Now, I'm not talking about appeasers, you know, where you just kind of shove things under the rug and we just don't deal with things. We just want to, you know, keep the peace, keep the peace. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who promote peace. You know, it is one of the fruits of the Spirit that God wants to grow in us that we have peace about us, a character awe that God wants to have as a part of our lives is peace, a calmness, a quietness that seems to radiate from us that brings refreshment to those around us. Well, a third character, awe, is being well-rounded. Did you pick that up about David? He is a well-rounded guy. Uh, notice again in verse 18, the young man says, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man. <laughs> and the Lord is with him. David was amazing. I mean, you know, he's got this soft heart where he writes music and he plays the harp. And yet he's a valiant warrior, you know? No doubt his reputation about slaying lions and bears out with, when he's tending the sheep was, was, went before him. This, this guy was like a multifaceted diamond, you know? He was like, wow, it's just he sparkled, you know? He, he was captivating. He was engaging. He was, he was interesting. Are we? To be well-rounded takes practice, you know? 
I mean, David didn't just wake up and was able to play the harp. I mean, he had to practice playing the harp. He wasn't just all of a sudden a valiant warrior. I mean, he, like, you know, had to practice with the sling and the stone, and he had to practice, you know, how to, how to kill things. <laughs> he, he practiced being well-rounded. So let me suggest, uh, offer suggestions as to how we might grow to be more well-rounded. Many of you, me included, uh, we used to play an instrument when we were in high school. One suggestion to be well-rounded is go into that closet, dig that old instrument out, dust it off, and pick it up again. Why not? Or for some of you, you are readers, and uh, you like to read, and I like to read. Uh, and we get kind of stuck in a rut on what we read. We read sort of in our track, you know, whether if that's fiction or nonfiction or this is, a, you know, all about what I do in life. I suggest we broaden our reading. Stretch yourself. Read something outside of the normal for us. I think it would just help us to broaden ourselves, to be more well-rounded. Or how about uh, staying away from things that can dull us down, you know? Too much TV. Too much screen time, you know, whether if that's computers or smartphones or something. How about picking up a hobby? You know, something that, that, that you can get better at. It's good to always be thinking, what, what am I getting better at? And then stay engaged. Keep learning. Keep growing. Stay well-rounded. Well, one more character quality character awe about David is he was God-focused. Did you pick that up at the end of that description of David? It's almost like a little add-on, you know? In verse 18, it's like all this stuff about him, and then, it, and then it's this little add-on. And the Lord is with him. Imagine if people described you or described me, and they kind of added that, you know, like, well, yeah, he does this or she does that, and they're, they're really good at this, they're really good at that. Um, you know, it's just like the Lord is with them, or the Lord is with her. Like, they just seem to be connected to God. The only way that somebody might say that about us is if you and I are God-focused in our lives. Another interaction that Samuel had with Saul dates even before this interaction. Because years before that, he was already warning Saul, Listen, Saul, you got to... Worry about your character. Don't worry about your reputation. You've got to make sure that you're following after God wholeheartedly because if you don't, God's going to take the kingdom away from you. So he just kept giving him warnings. And way back in, in 1 Samuel 13, we read this warning from Samuel to Saul. It says, But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is long before Samuel even knew about David, but he knew whoever God had picked was a man after his own heart. And you know, that title for David was given to him, and all throughout his lifetime, all throughout world history, that label has stuck. Through the good, through the bad, through the ugly, David is known as a man after God's own heart. And this is the foundation to characters to character qualities where we would be, where, where people would say, have some awe about our character. Yeah, we must build our hearts toward God. That means we 
love what God loves. We hate what God hates. We, we, we invest in what God would invest in. What matters to Him matters to us. What He's passionate about, we are passionate about. So how do you think you're doing, by the way, with your character? I would like just quickly at the end here for us to do a little character checkup. Okay? I had a checkup about two weeks ago. I did my annual physical. And, you know, when, when you do your annual physical, I don't know if you're like me, but I really don't want to do it. I don't want to do it because I just know I'm going to go in there and they're just going to tell me all the stuff that's wrong with me. Right? So I go in there and I hop on the scale. I hate hopping on the scale. I hop on the scale and I can read the numbers, but they look over at it. Then they write it down on the chart. The doctor comes in and looks at that number that's put on that chart. And he says to me, hey, you could lose a few pounds. I know. I have a feeling that's going to be an issue with me until I see Jesus, actually. Then they take your blood pressure, you know. They squeeze your arm. You kind of watch that little needle. You can see that top number and then you see that bottom number. I know where it's at. Well, your blood pressure. You probably bring that down a little bit. Actually, I was surprised. This, this time, the last time, yeah, you got to bring that down. This time, you're pretty much in the range. So, felt pretty good about that. All in all, I passed. I passed, you know. But reality is, it's good to have a checkup. It's good to have a checkup. Because it tells us where we're at and where we need to be. So I just want to ask us two questions this morning to kind of check up on our character, okay, as we get started here. The first one is, which way do the scales tip for you? Does it tip toward Saul or does it tip toward David? Now, that's a hard one to answer, honestly. I would suggest circle, the one that you think you tip toward. And uh, why it's hard to answer is because even in the midst of Dr. Yarger and the other professor and that turmoil that was going on through all of that, I'll bet if you ask them in that moment, do you have any character flaws, they would both say, no, I'm right. It's hard to see our own flaws. So here's something that might, I might challenge you with. Not I might, I'm going to challenge you with it. Pick someone who loves you, spouse, a parent, a friend, a sibling, someone who knows you, and ask, so, ask them, so help me understand how my character is. Maybe even tell them about Saul and David and say, if you had to judge me, which way would you go with it? Would you tip the scales toward one or the other? See what they'd say. Give them an opportunity to be honest. And then ask them how we can work together to move it toward more of character awes than character flaws. And then one other check that I would love us to do. Um, just ask yourself the question, uh, where's my heart? Where's my heart at? Because character really begins and ends in the heart. So you see that line under there? Uh, in your bulletin, you can rank yourself one to ten. One is, I've got 
flaws. I've got major flaws. I know I got major flaws. Ten is, you know what? <laughs> I got a lot of character awes, actually. But I'm just giving you a warning. If you're up there near ten and you're feeling that way, don't think too highly of yourself because uh, you might be a narcissist and you just have to back it down a little bit more. But it's good to be honest about it. Brutally honest about it. And that begins by allowing God to open up our hearts. To help us really see ourselves for who we really are. So with that in mind, let's go to him in prayer.